Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. A couple weeks ago, I told you that you could steal the Bibles from the church, and that's still true. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and we'll pass them out. We're in John chapter 4 and page 604. Uh, But while you can steal the Bibles, don't steal the hand sanitizer that's around the building. I know that that has a hot market price on the street, but we need it. Today we have a a long text um, from John chapter 4, and I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Instead of reading it all up front, we're just going to read it as we go, verse by verse. So we're going to be in John chapter 4, verse 604. And the two questions that we're going to get at today, one is asked by a woman to Jesus, and she asked the question, so where do you get this living water? Question the woman asked to Jesus. But then Jesus later asks a question to his disciples in verse 35. He asked the question, don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest, which is a question about uh, people coming to Jesus and the harvest of spiritually thirsty souls coming to him. So we're going to get through those questions as we read through the text, but I'm going to pray right now. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, we often come to you not even realizing how thirsty and hungry we are for life. Uh, We come to you just busy at times, trying to put out the right image for everyone, uh, not even being honest with where we're really at, but beneath all that, beneath the business and beneath the Instagram filters and and beneath the not having any time for self-reflection, there are spiritually thirsty souls. And that's who we are. We are broken people living in a broken world, and we are all spiritually thirsty. And so we pray that as we experience your word today, that you would meet us in our thirst. And all God's people said, as human beings, we are creatures of longings and desires. And you know how I know? Because I've seen people play the claw machine at the arcade. You know that that game where it's not really a game where you put in a quarter and you go up to the joystick right in front of the glass. And on the other side of the glass are all those toys or stuffed animals. And once you put in the quarter, you get to move the joystick and the claw starts up and it moves and, and, and then it, you push it away from you and then once you hit the button, that claw goes down but you no longer have any control. Once you hit the button, that claw's on its own. And that's the funny part is when you hit the button, you watch people and they start talking to the claw. They'll start balancing on one foot and like using their hands to try and get the claw to go where they want it to go. And as that claw goes down and it grasps for something out of that pit of stuff, uh, you usually come up a loser. Sometimes, sometimes you get something and it looks like it's in the grasp of the claw and it gets halfway up and then it teeters and it falls back down. And what I say is you don't really know someone until you've watched them play the claw at the arcade. I've been there with my kids and be like, give daddy more quarters. Come on, I'm just going to do it one more time. No more tokens, Dad. 
In fact, I, I read a story about this little boy named Mason, and Mason was out to eat with his family at a restaurant, and while his parents were eating, he went over, and there was a claw machine at the restaurant, and Mason didn't have time to get quarters from uh, any of his family, but he saw a stuffed animal that he won. So Mason, instead of putting the quarters in and, and pushing the claw out, Mason just went up through the slot into the claw machine, and his parents came, and there Mason is behind the glass in the claw machine, sitting on top of all the stuffed animals. I think we have a picture of this. This is from a news article I saw. And uh, eventually there were firemen that came and were able to get him out. I, I know that we are people of deep longing and desire, and the people who have designed the claw know that as well, because all that stuff, it's just, it's just right there on the other side of the glass. You can see it. Uh, and then when you control that joystick and you send the claw down, it's like, it's like you're touching it. You almost have it, and then you don't. And you're like, one more time. If I can just try one more time, I will get it. And the people who have designed the claw know how we work, that we are people with strong desires and deep longings. And that's just not about the claw. That's about life. People are creatures of longing and desire. And there's so many things in life that seem like they're right there. They're just on the other side of the glass. And if we could just get our hand in there and grab it, we would get it, and it would completely change our life. And so we often see things that we want or things that we long for, like status or comfort or acceptance or power or acknowledgement or pleasure, and we look at them, they're right there, and we spend our lives trying to get those things. We spend our lives on chances to try and get those things, like prizes in the arcade, and then all of a sudden we realize that we've spent too much of ourselves trying to get those things to fulfill our longings and desires. Those longings that we have come from a deep place of spiritual thirst. A deep place of spiritual thirst. And every one of us has this deep spiritual thirst. As broken people living in a broken world, all of us have these longings and desires and spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. And we look to things to quench the thirst. If we could just get our hands on a little more money, that'll make it all right. If we can just get that romance, then we'll get better. If we can just get the recognition that we deserve, if we can just get our sex life the way we want it, or if I can just have a little more alcohol or, or get my religious life right, then that'll subdue that hunger. That'll, that'll quench that thirst. And yet we can never quite seem to get those things in our grasp. They always slip out of our hands. Or if we do get our hands on them, all it causes is fear that we're going to lose them. And so we're left with this unquenched spiritual thirst in our souls, a, a, a thirst that we cannot satisfy. In John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee. And starting in verse 3, it says that Jesus left Judea and went to Galilee, and he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now, Jesus is traveling in this story. He's just left Jerusalem, 
and it says that he had to go through Samaria. Samaria was a place that was full of the people called Samaritans, and Jews did not like Samaritans. Samaritans were considered by the Jewish people to be Jewish half-breeds, like not pure ethnically like the Jews. What had happened was several hundred years earlier, Assyria had come into the Samaritan region and had taken over. And they had taken like half the people and removed them and spread them out over the Assyrian Empire. And then taken people from around the Assyrian Empire and moved them into Samaria. That was a strategy for occupying uh, that area. And, And the people who were not from Samaria began to get married and have children with the people who were from Samaria. So you have these people that are half Jewish and then half something else. Jewish people did not like Samaritans because of that, but because there was also a history of differences and bitterness between the two groups of people. See, the Samaritans did not acknowledge the whole Old Testament. They just followed the first five books of the Old Testament. But then secondly, when the Jewish people returned from exile in Babylon, the Samaritans said, let us help you rebuild your temple. And the Jewish people said, we don't like you, no. And so the Samaritans said, we'll build our own temple then. We're not going to worship with you in Jerusalem. We're going to build a temple on Mount Gerizim, which is right where Jesus is in this story. When traveling, most Jews went around Samaria. So it's funny that the text says that Jesus had to go through Samaria because he didn't actually have to go through there. So maybe his have to wasn't out of necessity, but based out of mission. We just came out of John 3, where Jesus has told Nicodemus, for God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, so that the Jewish people who believe in him, no, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. So maybe Jesus is traveling through Samaria, though many people would have found it offensive, was on purpose. Not that he had to logistically, but that he wanted to missionally. He comes to a a town called Sikar, which is right next to Mount Gerizim, near this national historic site, the Well of Jacob. Jesus is tired from traveling, and it's noon, and the sun is high, and he sits down at the well of Jacob to rest. Now remember, Jesus, or John has told us that Jesus is eternal God made flesh. He really is human, and he tires, and he needs rest, and he's thirsty. Verse 7 says this, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. H- how interesting, first of all, just that Jesus, the eternal son of God, asked this Samaritan woman for a help. You know, Christians, we often think that we operate from this position of having it all together. But if Jesus can ask someone for help, so can we. Jesus asks someone for help. And the Samaritan woman questions him and says, why are you asking me? 
Now, the text tells us the reason that she is confused is because Jews don't talk with Samaritans. Jews don't talk to Samaritans, but there's more than that. He's a man, and she's a woman. And culturally, you don't do that. Men and women were very guarded in the ancient Near East about their interactions with each other. If it wasn't your wife, you don't even make eye contact with her, and you certainly don't talk to her in a private place where there are no witnesses. So because he is a Jew and she is a Samaritan, the request for water is unheard of. But because he is a man and she is a woman, the moment is a little bit scandalous. But not only that, she's scandalous. The text says that she is getting water at high noon when the sun is at its hottest. Now culturally at that time, women often went to get water first thing in the morning when it was the coolest. And they often went together. It was a social event where they would help each other and they would have conversations and they'd go and get water from the well and then they'd all come back together. And yet here is this woman getting water from the well at the hottest part of the day when no one else is going to be there by herself. There's something about her that's off. There's something about her life where she would say, I don't want to be seen by anybody else, or no one wants to be seen with me. There's something about her life that is scandalous. She is scandalous. But Jesus doesn't see scandal. Jesus doesn't see scandal. Jesus sees a woman with a deep need, a woman with a deep spiritual thirst that nothing in this world satisfy. Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. I love the way Jesus says that. If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, in other words, he's talking about himself, you would ask him, you would ask me, and he, me, would give you living water. How often do we spend life figuratively banging on the glass, pumping quarters into the machine to try and perceive or try and get what we want from the other end? And here is Jesus saying, ask and I will give to you. It's not something you have to earn. It's not something that you have to pursue. It's something that you ask for and I will give to you, give you living water. Now, in the Old Testament, living water could be a symbol for deep cleansing and forgiveness from sin. It could also be a metaphor used for the life of God flooding in the people of God and spreading out into a broken world. And so there's this deep spiritual meaning that Jesus is trying to convey to her when he says the term living water. But in a desert culture, living water also meant like a natural spring, like water that hadn't been sitting there for days and days and days like water that continually was fresh, and that's the water you would want to drink in a desert culture. She believes Jesus is talking about the water in the desert, not the water that you get from God. She believes he's talking about something physical, not something spiritual. And so she says to him in verse 11, Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? 
you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. In other words, she's saying, surely you don't think you're going to get that kind of living water uh, from this well. You don't even have a bucket. But Jesus says in verse 13, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now, when Jesus talks about living water, he's not talking about magical H2O. He's not talking about the physical. He's he's talking about the spiritual. He's talking about the life of God flooding into this woman's soul. He's talking about spiritual refreshment for her in, in the deserts of life. He's talking about the Spirit of God invading her and changing everything about her, so much so that she will no longer be parched from spiritual thirst, but rather have the life of God springing up in her and out of her to others. Whoever drinks from the water Jesus gives will never get thirsty again. Jesus is saying that he gives living water that quenches the spiritual thirst that you and I have every day. Now, isn't that what we all want? Don't we want that? But here's the thing. We often try and quench that spiritual thirst that we have every day with things that only make us thirstier. David Foster Wallace says this, that when, we, uh, that when we pursue those things to quench our spiritual thirst, rather than filling us up, they eat us alive. Look what he says. Money and things, in other words, if you look to money and things to quench your spiritual thirst, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. What about this? If you worship your own body and your beauty and your sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you look to your intellect and how smart you are to quench your spiritual hunger. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It is interesting that Wallace uses the word worship when we're talking about spiritual thirst. In other words, what do we give the most weight in our life to? What do we center everything else around? What do we go, I have to have that or life is not worth living? Those things that Wallace talks about are often the things that are just on the other side of the glass of the claw machine that we bang on the window saying, I have to have that. I'll pump as many quarters into the machine as it takes to get me that thing. And when we finally get it, it only makes us thirstier because we're terrified of losing it. We have to work so hard to get it and keep it, and it slips out of our grasp. And the reality is whatever that thing is, we never really have it. It has us. 
And sometimes because we're so fixated on those things, we try to use Jesus to get those very things. We tell Jesus, I'm thirsty, so fix my situation. I'm hungry, so make my dreams come true. I have these longings, so make my life exactly the way I want it. And we treat Jesus as if he's a genie. Now, Jesus cares about our hopes and our dreams and every detail of our life, but Jesus is not a genie. In fact, when Jesus talks about never thirsting again, he's not talking at all about giving things to us to quench our spiritual thirst. But that's exactly what the woman thinks. Look what she says in verse 15. Sir, the woman said to him, whatever, you're ta- whatever water you're talking about, give me this water. And we're like, we think she gets it until she says this, so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water from this well. Give me that water so that my problems will go away. Give me that water so I won't have to walk here anymore by myself ostracized by the village. Give me that water because every time I come here by myself, I'm reminded of my scandalous life and that I'm a scandal and that I have no friends. I don't want to be reminded every time I come to this well. So Jesus, give me that water to fix my problem and ease my pain and make my life easier. That's what I need you for, Jesus. That's what I'm thirsty for. She thinks the water hole in the ground represents her problem, but she has a deep blind spot. She doesn't see the hole in her own soul that's causing her deep thirst. But Jesus wants to show her just how thirsty she really is. Verse 16, he says, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus says, for you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now it's interesting here. What she said is true. She says, I don't have a husband. And that is a truth used to cover up a deeper truth about her life that is much more scandalous. And I I love how Jesus doesn't let her get away, yet he doesn't disgrace her. He said, what you said is true, and here's why. You don't have a husband because you've been to the altar five times, and each time that has ended with a marriage breakup. And right now you have someone who is your man, except you haven't made a public commitment to him. So you're on man number six. You have lived a life that is scandalous. And here Jesus is exposing her and her scandal. Why? Because she does not know how spiritually thirsty she is. She doesn't understand that her serial relationships are really her just trying trying to quench the deep spiritual longings and thirst that she has. She doesn't see the hole in her soul. All she sees is the hole in the ground of Jacob's well. She doesn't recognize, I've stood at the altar five times, and none of those marriages have ended happily ever after. And I still have this thirst. Jesus will expose our deep spiritual thirst. 
And that's comforting and it's a little scary. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. It's interesting that Jesus asks her questions that expose her thirst, and she tries to give a truthful enough answer that still covers up the deeper deeper issue. I don't have a husband. That's right, you don't, because you're on man number six. But because Jesus is not just fully human, he's fully God, he knows. He knows her story. He knows this woman's name. He knows the names of the five men and the six men that she's been with. He has supernatural knowledge of her dodgy relationship status because he is fully God as well as fully man. And maybe there's a lesson for us there. When Jesus confronts you in your life, when he tries to expose your deep spiritual thirst, you may fool yourself with a half-truth, but you have not fooled Jesus. He will expose how you are trying to fill the hole in your soul and quench your thirst, and here's why. Because he wants to be the one that fills the hole in your soul. He wants to be the one that quenches your deep spiritual thirst. So when Jesus tries to expose how thirsty you are, let him dig. Don't cover it up with a half-truth because he knows the whole truth. And don't try and change the topic on him because he will get you, which is exactly what the woman tries to do. She's uncomfortable. He just knows things about her that she doesn't want anyone to know. So she tries to change the topic. Verse 19, sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, pointing to Mount Gerizim, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. You notice the little shift she did there? Uh, We're talking about her relationship status. We're talking about her sexual history. And then she's like, let's talk about a theology of worship, Jesus. Let's get technical here. And she and Jesus are sitting there probably at the foot of Mount Gerizim, the site of the Samaritans' worship of God. And they had picked this mountain to be their holy place of worship because there were so many events in the Old Testament that God had done around that mountain. And so while the Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim, the the Jewish people worshipped in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. And because those different locations for worship were controversial, there was even violence between the Jews attacking the Temple at Mount Gerizim and the Samaritans doing stuff at the temple in Jerusalem. And she's trying to say, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about which site is more correct for us to worship God at. And Jesus goes with her. Okay, you want to talk about that? We'll talk about that. Verse 21, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. And what he's saying to her is, listen, if you want to get technical, the Jewish people are actually right about this. You all have ignored true knowledge of God because you've only looked at the first five books of the Old Testament. God has revealed himself in the whole Old Testament. And part of that is he says that worship is to happen in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans are ignoring what God has said about worship, and you've created this site here to worship God on this mountain when God said worship should happen in Jerusalem. And we know this is true. We know that God is working in the Jewish people because the Messiah will come from our people. But that whole controversy is about to be irrelevant. There is a shift coming and a shift that will change worship. And when this shift comes, worship won't be focused on a place or a time or a ritual. Jesus says to her in verse 23, An hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is saying that there is a shift that is now here where worship will not be about people gathering in a specific holy place, but about worship being an internal holy posture where your deepest self drinks deeply of God as he truly is. Because worship won't be about you going to where God lives, but rather God coming to live in you. God is spirit, and God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. What does he mean by that? Well, God being worshipped in spirit is much of what we talked about last week with the doctrine of regeneration. When Jesus talks about worshipping in spirit, he's not talking about spontaneous worship services versus pre-planned worship services. He's not talking about style or planning when it comes to worship. What he's talking about is a new group of people where the spirit of God invades them And God lives in them, and they themselves become the temple of God, and therefore can worship God wherever they go. It doesn't matter if they're close to Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. And so, Jesus is not talking about the difference in worship style, but rather a difference in worship state. The internal change of a born-again heart. God wants people who worship him from a heart regenerated by the Spirit of God in them. God is Spirit, and God must be worshipped in Spirit and in truth. And in truth. When when Jesus says that God must be worshipped in truth, he's specifically referring to the fact that this Samaritan woman's people have ignored most of the Old Testament. In other words, they're worshipping God And it's the true God, and yet they have made God in their own image because they've ignored the revelation of God from God's truth in the Word. For us, here's what that means. Many people say, I don't need theology. I just want to worship. My experience of God is what matters. And Jesus is saying, no. No, true knowledge of God matters because if you ignore getting to know who God really is, you will end up worshiping a God that's not really God, but a God created in your own image. We must worship in spirit and in truth. In our worship, if we are hiding or ignoring aspects of who God is because it is uncomfortable or unpopular, then we're not really worshiping God in truth. We're worshiping God that's made in our own image. And so 
for us, we can't really ignore who God is and just worship our way through it. Because we have to know the truth of who God really is in order to truly worship. God is spirit, and God must be worshipped in spirit and truth. Wait a minute, why is Jesus taking us over here to right field? I mean, we got the whole part about being spiritually thirsty. And then we got the whole part about this woman having six zero relationships. And then she changed the topic to worship. And why is Jesus running with this topic? Because spiritual thirst is all about worship. Spiritual thirst is all about worship. The thirst that you and I experience in the depths of our soul is about finding something grand enough and great enough and amazing enough to build our lives around, to bring us to a sense of awe and to fill the hole in our soul. Whether you are a Christian or not, you are looking for something to worship. You are looking for something to build your life around. You're looking for something so grand that you you can center your life on it. The spiritual thirst we experience is all about worship. And so Jesus goes there because he knows he's going to catch her on the back end in this conversation. And the quest that you and I have, that quest to have our thirst quenched, is about worship. And the problem, the reason that whatever we think we can get to fill the hole in our soul and quench our thirst, the reason why that never works is because we cannot find something or someone that can bear the weight of our worship. We can't find someone or something that's worthy of our worship. But Jesus is saying something is going to shift where worship happens in a different way. It's not about a ritual or a place, but rather it's going to come deeply into people's soul because the Spirit of God is going to enter in the hearts of both Jews and Samaritans, and to people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Because the truth of God is about to be revealed in a new way like never before. Well, the Samaritan woman, she takes it in. She listens. She might not know exactly everything that he's talking about, or she might have more questions, but she kind of winds the conversation down and says, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus looks at her and says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I, the one speaking to you, am he. I, the one speaking to you, am not just a prophet. I am the Messiah. I, the one before you, am the one who can explain everything to you. I, the one telling you about worship, am the way, the truth, and the life. I, the one looking at you, can bring healing and forgiveness into your scandalous life. I, the one sitting before you, can quench your spiritual thirst. Because I the, I, the one looking into your thirsty soul, am the only one worthy of your worship. I'm the only one worthy 
of your worship. Jesus says, because I, the one speaking to you, am the Messiah. There he sits before her. She had met a thirsty man and found out he was a Jew and then assumed he was a prophet and then meets the Messiah, the very one who can quench her thirsty soul. Not someone behind the glass that she can't grasp, but someone right in front of her that's moving towards her. Not a man she has to pursue and hope she can keep in her grasp, but a Messiah that was there waiting for her. Not an escape from her thirst, but Jesus who is there to quench her thirst. This is the living water Jesus Christ gives to you. It is the life of God coming to you in your spiritual thirst and and welling up the life of God in you. Relationship with Jesus quenches spiritual thirst today and tomorrow and next week and every year after that because Jesus is eternal. He has no limit. He will forgive your sins over and over again and fill your parched soul. So the question for you is, are you bringing your spiritual thirst to Jesus? Are you bringing your spiritual thirst to Jesus? Maybe you're on a spiritual journey and you're considering Christianity, but you haven't yet found it. You haven't yet found that thing that you're looking for that will fill the hole in your soul. Jesus will quench your thirst. Maybe you realize that you're trying to quench your thirsty soul with something besides Jesus. Maybe you've been walking with him for some time now, and he just hasn't quite done it for you in this last season of life. So you're looking for something else to fill that hole in your soul, but it always evades you, and it's never enough. Jesus will quench your thirst. Relationship with Jesus Christ is like no But you have to come to him with your thirst. At the end of the service, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. But let's see how the woman responds. Just at that moment, at the high point of when Jesus has just said, here's who I am, the disciples come back. I always feel like they're at the wrong place at the wrong time, kind of like killing the vibe of everything. They show up, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? John's trying to tell us that that would have been normal for them to say, but they didn't say that. Verse 28, then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Now, every bit of scripture is inspired, and there's a reason why John told us that she left that empty water jar. At the beginning of the story, this water jar is the very thing that she thinks she needs to be filled by Jesus. Make my life easier, Jesus, so I don't have to come here alone and fill this water jar every day. But she leaves the well, and she leaves her empty water jar there because her soul has been filled. And then While she had lived her life in loneliness, she returns to the very village 
that thinks she's scandalous. The very village that has shunned her. And she goes back no longer alone because she has relationship with Jesus Christ. And when she goes back, she's not held back by the scandal of her story, but announces, I have met someone. And I'm sure everyone in the village is like, we bet you have. (laughs) But she's not talking about a man. She's talking about the Messiah. She goes back to the village and says, come see someone who knows everything about me. And even now, in this story, we see the life of God bubbling up in her and out. What a wonderful example of this woman who's had her life changed by Jesus. And within 30 minutes, she's a new person with a new role in the midst of her scandal. Now, if you're here today and you are a new Christian and you're excited about it, don't stop being excited. You have a special role to play. As the life of God bubbling up in you through Jesus Christ is fresh and new, tell everybody. Don't let the fact that you are new to this hold you back. Because your life change is the very thing that God will use to bring new people to him. It's the very thing that Jesus will use to show that what he does is true, and the water that he, go, that he gives really does satisfy. Don't be intimidated by how far you have to go. Look what God has already done in you and tell somebody about it. The disciples have urged Jesus to eat something, and Jesus basically says, I already ate, which is a weird thing to say. And the disciples start asking each other, Did you give him something, or did someone else give him some food? And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. And then he asks the disciples this question. While the woman has run back to the village and is rounding up her whole village to come and meet this man who knows everything about her, uh, Jesus asks the disciples this question in verse 35. Don't you say... There are still four more months, and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you as the Samaritans walk back. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. What is Jesus getting at? Well, here he has just given this Samaritan woman uh, spiritual water that has quenched her thirst. And after he does that, he says, I'm full. In quenching her thirst, he is doing the work of God. In meeting with this sinful, scandalous woman and bringing the life of God into her, he says, I'm satisfied. In bringing new life in her, he's saying, I am doing the work of God. Then as the Samaritan town makes their way towards Jesus, he says, do you see the harvest? Disciples, do you see the thirsty souls out there who need me? This is what it means to eat. This is what it means to be full. The time is now. Friends, once Jesus finds you and begins quenching your thirst, you will begin to look around and see the spiritual thirst of others. And what Jesus is telling us is that there is great joy and fulfillment and purpose 
in leading others to the very person who can quench their spiritual thirst. And that very thing fills you up even more. It's not just about going to Jesus and getting your thirst met. Thirst met. It's about bringing others to the one who can quench their spiritual thirst as well. And the story ends with verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. If Jesus is quenching your spiritual thirst, don't keep it to yourself. There are spiritually thirsty people out there that need to know that Jesus gives living water that fills the hole in their soul. And in this, listen, Jesus isn't elusive. These Samaritan people who are not Jewish say, Jesus, will you stay with us a couple more days? And he goes, sure. I'd love to be with you people that the rest of my people hates. The women's testimony gets them interested. Then they spend time with Jesus and they believe because Jesus loves to be with them. They believe that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jewish people, but the Savior of all people, for they are Samaritans. Black, white, brown, rich, middle class and poor, man, woman, and child, Jesus is the Savior for all humanity. He is the answer to your deep longings. He gives the living water that quenches everyone's thirst. He can forgive scandalous past and bring the life of God bubbling up in you and out of you towards others. So bring your thirst to him, and when you see others grasping for things to quench their spiritual thirst, bring them to the living water of Jesus, the Savior of the world. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.